for my title this morning, The Spirit of Wisdom and the Spirit of Revelation. The Spirit of Wisdom and Revelation. Paul, after unpacking 14 verses of the plan and purpose of God, understands that the word wherefore is a critical transition in what he's going to say in this book. And so he breaks out into prayer. He's praying that God would give them and us today the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of who God is. And we need to pray today in this day of chaos, in this day of confusion, in this day of political instability, in this day of wars still, in this day of uh, great darkness that the church would have discernment and wisdom through this revelation to know Him and to know the things that Paul will follow with in this prayer. He understands that this is necessary if the church is to get off the ground, as it were, in fulfilling the very thing that verses 3 through 14 are pointing to right here, right now, today. The word spirit here is little less, but in the Greek language, unless the word started at the beginning of a sentence, they didn't use a capital. So the context provides the means by which the translators decided big S or little s. They chose little s because it's a disposition. It's an inclination. It's an attitude of wisdom and revelation that, of course, comes from the big S, Holy Spirit of God. Paul would use a similar phrase in Ephesians chapter 4 when he said, the spirit of your mind. We need to be renewed in the spirit, the attitude, the disposition, the inclinations of our mindset if this is going to play out right here in this local assembly or any local assembly that's God's church on the planet. That means it's critical, it's vital that you see your place in what God has done and is doing in your life as it relates to the local assembly of God and the spirit of wisdom and revelation that God has given. Being enlightened, Paul would say. Having been enlightened, perfect passive. In the past, completely once for all, passive. You didn't do it, God did with an ongoing result that you may know. So God's done something in the past. It has an ongoing result And that's why Paul is praying that this would happen. Something that's done, but something that needs to repeat itself over and over again today in this moment in history. Paul would use similar words in Ephesians 4.17 when he would say, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity, futility of their minds. Every street of a Gentile, of an unsaved person, is like a dead-end street. It never gets to destination. It will never get to the destination. Don't walk like that. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, rooted in this one thing, the blindness, the porosis of their hearts. Hardness. Now this blindness is not like a man born blind from his birth. And you may say, poor man, he... He doesn't know, he can't see. This is a blindness and hardness that is a blindness that rejects something. Romans 1.28 Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Here's the ignorance. It's a willful, defiant, 
disapproval of God, a rejection. We have no preference in God, no desire of God. We want nothing to do with God. We want Him out of our minds by nature. Don't walk like that. So this blindness produces an ignorance. That's why they don't know God, because of this blind hardness of heart. So they're alienated from the life of God. That's eternal life. And their understanding is darkened. But you, if you're a believer, God has enlightened you. The eyes, which means you see something. Understanding can be translated your very soul. It doesn't mean just your thoughts. It means your uh, your your attitudes, your, your preferences, your affections, your desires. He's illuminated you. He's enlightened you with what? The knowledge of Him. Not just accurate knowledge from the Word, but a knowledge of His glory. You know God. If you're a believer. And if you know God, the reason Paul says you know Him is so this enlightenment would lead to something in your life, no matter how chaotic the times, no matter how many wars break out, you would understand and have a wisdom and a revelation in this knowledge so that you would be something right here, right now. Now that's what Paul is saying, and that's what this transition is about. That's why Paul says, for this past tense knowledge that you have, the way it keeps going, prayer, the way it, that spirit comes to more fullness in your life, prayer, the way you know more of the one that you know because of God's grace, prayer and revelation. Paul uses this word in Ephesians chapter 3 where he says, how that by revelation God made known to me the mystery. As I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now catch this. Paul has revelation, that's the same word as revelation in the text. And then what did he say? When you read, you understand. Paul said, when you read the revelation, you understand the mystery. So when Paul prays that you have this wisdom and revelation, in chapter 3 he clarifies, you've got to read. That's how you know. Now this is not a discovery of something that you don't already have implanted in you by the Word, but it's coming to this spirit, this fullness of what God has done in enlightening your eyes. So we pray for this spirit of wisdom and revelation, and then we read and we understand the very revelation of the mystery that Paul has been granted for you today. Beloved, we're just going to be drawn into the chaos of the world, to the distractions of the world, if we don't follow the pattern of the Apostle Paul. We should be praying for this spirit of wisdom and revelation, and we should be reading Because that's God's means, having enlightened you in the past tense once for all, that it keeps going as an ongoing action. Because to know Him, that you may know this about Him, is the perfect tense, past completed action. But it's active voice. Which means what God has done in the past, apart from you, you were passive. Now you're active in what? Prayer and reading. So that you may have this attitude, this disposition, this understanding. Your eyes having been enlightened. So that you may know more 
of the great purpose of God. So I want to take this transition word, wherefore, and I'm going to take a step back for you guys that were at the conference. This is just a little review for you so we can all come back together. This was part of my message at the conference. We'll have an overview here, then we're going to take the transition wherefore, and then we're going to look at the resources we have in Christ. The application of 3 through 14 will come together at the word wherefore for this cause. I'm praying, you read, and now we have these resources. And the whole rest of the book, Paul's already thinking about when he, when he prays this. And when he's asking God, the Father of glory, to give the church at Ephesus something they have, knowledge, but the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowing of God and in the knowing hope, riches, power, headship. We need that more than anything today in all the chaos. Alright, so here's the overview. This knowledge of Him is also a knowledge that brings us to the praise of His glory. Three sentences, 3 through 14, each ending in a period, each concluding with the praise of the glory of His grace, the praise of His glory, and the praise of His glory. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, you'll have similar endings there. So in the first verse, or first Sentence, rather, beginning in verse 3. Paul would say in verse 4, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. The one to whom your eyes have been enlightened. You would stand before Him holy and faultless before the presence of His throne of glory. In love, having predestinated you unto the adoption of children. By Jesus Christ unto Himself, to bring you to Himself, to bring you to this knowledge, to bring you into the family of God. You're no longer alienated from God. You're no longer estranged from His glory. You're no longer in the darkness with regard to who He is. You've been brought into the family of God so that you would know Him as God, your Father. He is your Father. And all the resources that are contained in that name, He is for you. If you've trusted Christ, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Everything you need to be a mother, everything you need to be a father or a church member in a chaotic world, you have it. Because God chose you and then He predetermined to bring you into the family. Why? To the praise of the glory of His grace. You've got to know Him verse 15 through 17, in order to praise Him. So God took the divine initiative of grace to bring you into the family, not owing to your will or anything about you, but simply because it was the good pleasure of His will. All rooted in His choice, not yours. Or you'd be just as lost as you were when you were born into this world. Second sentence. How... Was God going to make us holy and faultless before Him? In whom we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of His grace. Paul uses the word according, I think, six times. It's a favorite word in 14 verses. Or maybe to the end of the chapter. Owing to. So, the choice of God and the predetermination of God to bring you into the family would never happen. Except He sent His Son to be a Redeemer. 
to purchase you and bring you into the family of God so that you would know the high privilege that God has lavished upon you in Christ that you would be called a son of God. That's astounding. It should be astounding to us. And so Christ the Redeemer came. And now you've been forgiven of all your iniquities. You're welcomed into the family of God as His very own Son. He doesn't hold you at a distance. He didn't say if you could just get cleaned up a little better. He didn't say if you get things worked out. He says, come, you're mine. Wherefore, verse 15, wherefore. See, this doctrine of election and predestination is not some nice doctrine to put in your head. Wherefore, you need to know the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, that's a present tense redemption. We have it. So now Paul moves into present tense plan of God, which, remember, is bringing us to the transition word in verse 15. Wherein, that is, in the riches of His grace, He hath abounded toward you in all wisdom and prudence. And that's a similar statement. Knowledge, understanding. He's revealed something to you. Having made known unto you, here it is, the mystery of His will according to the good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now these verses are stupendous. Can I use, is that a good word for here? Stupendous? I don't know, maybe there's a better word. Astounding? Unbelievable? The word abounded means to overflow. To excel, the word I used at the conference was over the top. I try to occasionally use current generation words to get you young people's attention so you don't go to sleep on me, right? Because this is so critical. It is so important. God has gone over the top, if you're a believer, towards you in, in revealing, giving you this wisdom and prudence. And This wisdom and prudence is He's made known to you the mystery of His will. Now just briefly in chapter 3, Paul tells us what that mystery is. God had not revealed this in ages past unto the sons of men as He has now, present tense, right here in this building, right now, has revealed it unto you through His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Right? What is it? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. Beloved, here's our purpose right here, right now. With a war raging in Ukraine, here it is. The people groups, which goes beyond nations down to religious people groups like Muslims and Hindu and and Buddhist and Zoroastrianism. I have to look that one up every time. People out of the religions, out of the languages, out of the tribes, out of the clans. It just gets real specific, doesn't it? Revelation 5.9 Because Christ has redeemed a people by His blood out of of every kindred and language and, and people and 
nation. Nation is ethnos, is the word, it's the same word here. Ethnic group. I know some, some uh, missionary people have tried to get a handle on that people group and they've defined it. Not sure how deep that goes, but I know it goes beyond American border, Russian border, Ukraine, Chinese. It goes smaller. God has gone over the top in making that known to the church, to you. Fellow heirs, same body, same local assembly. He's, he's drawing the people out of the nations into the one body. And that they all partake of the promise of the Spirit. By the gospel that He's given the church. By the gospel. So if we get distracted with all the instability in our culture, and there is a lot. I gave a list of things. I'm not going to read them. I don't have them with me. I just tried off the top of my head at the conference to give a list of things that were going on. And, you know, as I, I read them, my te- chest started tightening all over again. Deeply concerning. And things we need to engage when it comes to agendas whereby they want to teach our children certain things that are against the Word of God. But we must not remember our purpose is not political. It's spiritual. And the purpose of this revelation, God has gone over the top for us, is to remind us that He's bringing people from from all people groups into the church for the praise of His glory. That's why we need the spirit of wisdom and revelation in this current culture that we live in. How would this play out with Russia and Ukraine? Here are two nations fighting against each other. Here are two nations that can't stand each other. And when the rubble clears and the smoke settles, we should see what? Russian Christians and Ukrainian Christians embracing. Because they're part of the same body. See, We won't see that with Russians and Ukrainians probably. We understand the mystery. We can be against a nation and a dictator, but remember the Christians there in Russia. They're our brothers and sisters. We're the same body. And that plays out in our culture through, through the, the different nationalities, the different cultures, the different skin colors. Same body. Now that's the mystery. And then the reason God has revealed this mystery is so that, verse 10, in the dispensation, which is the administration of God, uh, is the way the word is used here, of the fullness of times, completeness is fullness, times is plural, kairos, seasons, eras, which means this, from creation day until the coming of Christ, God was administrating Ruling over all the seasons, eras, and time periods from creation to the time Jesus came to the world. It's what Daniel says in Daniel 20 when he said, God changeth the times and the seasons. And then he tells us what it means. He removes kings and sets them up. And then gives us the four kingdoms in Daniel 2 that God set up kings and removed them, and then a kingdom that would come and be established, the stone cut out of the mountain, that would destroy the great image, and it shall never be destroyed. At the fullness of the epoch-making periods that God ordained, He established a kingdom. 
But concurrent with those ages, there was an age of Galatians 4.4. It was the fullness of the time, singular, Christ was sent forth. It was the end of the Mosaic season. So concurrent from Genesis 1, creation until the coming of Christ, was the age of the kings of the world. Every king, every ruler, every despot, every dictator, every tyrant, tyrant was under the rule of God. Bringing those periods to the close of the fullness of times. And also the Mosaic Age. Was being brought to its completion. To what happened? The king came. God sent forth his son. Made of a woman. Made under the law. To redeem them that were under the law. That we might receive the adoption of sons. Closed out the Mosaic Age. Closed out all the ages of history past. Christ came. And he established the kingdom. That will never be destroyed. You're in that kingdom. It's broader than this, but it's the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to confine it to that. But this is what Paul is talking about to the church at Ephesus. So God has made known to you the mystery of the nations and the people groups coming into the church. And He closed out all these epoch-making periods of kings and rulers, every one of the past, including the Mosaic Age. And brought it to a close to establish a beginning. Here's the beginning. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. What does that mean? I had pointed out at the conference, there's only one other verb in the Greek, which is exactly like this in Romans chapter 13. Where Paul makes a summary. And that, that's what the word means. To, to sum up, to condense into a summary. So in Romans 13.9, Paul summarizes five commandments of the second tablet. Thou shalt not commit adultery, kill, steal, bear false witness, or covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended. It is condensed into a summary. That's the same verb. The only place in the New Testament. Love thy neighbors yourself. So Paul's saying... You could take all five commandments or every commandment of the Old Testament and it's brought to its focal point. It's concentrated and condensed to this focal point. You can see this in every commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. So when we take that word in verse 10, God has made known to you. He has gone over the top with you concerning the mystery as it relates to the Gentiles. So that at the completion of the times, which has been wrapped up now, he would start a new age or new season whereby Christ in everything is becoming the summary, the focal point, the supremacy, the preeminence in the church and beyond. You are part of that purpose. What are you doing? How is it transforming your life? How is it transforming motherhood and fatherhood and work and church life? Because the text says, all things. And one day, even nature itself, the groaning of creation, will one day experience the liberty of the sons of God. And Christ will, will make all things restored, all things new. But until that day, how is He accomplishing that? Through you. 
You talk about a purpose-making statement that'll revolutionize your life. If God grants you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. If we read, if we pray, if we ask God, then this purpose begins to take hold on us in 2022. And it transforms local assemblies. Now he tells us in verse 11, how is, it, how is he doing this through the church? In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him that worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That's just a summary statement that says, God is at work in everything, because everything is going to be summed up in Christ. So he's bringing about everything according to his sovereign will, the counsel of his own will, which means he had a divine consultation, not with humans, not with people, not outside of himself, whereby he consulted himself. And out of that will, he's working his purpose and his plan in your life, in Russia, in Ukraine. You want to know why Putin invaded Ukraine? Right there. Because God is bringing about everything. And he's going to sum it up one day in Christ. And Putin will bow to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And all dictators will drop their mouths at Christ and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, the Fa- uh, of God the Father. One, one way or the other. That's spectacular. And God determined to make you part of it. So He's bringing things about, not in such a way that He's accountable for Putin's sin or yours or anybody else's. But in a way that the secondary causes are real. You know, what are the millions of reasons he invaded Ukraine? What are the millions of reasons that are going on in the chaos in our, our society? The primary reason is that God is bringing about things. That they'll be summed up in Christ one day. And they're being summed up in the supremacy of Christ today in the church. In such a way that the people that do evil are accountable. And God is able to orchestrate His will in a way that brings Him glory. And so how does Paul end this sentence? Well, the same way. To the praise of His glory. And then thirdly, last sentence, moving into our transition. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted. We the Jews, Paul, and you the Gentiles. Because the mystery is now being unfolded in the church. After what? That you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So now, Paul looks to the future. The plan of God in the future is what? You've been sealed. It's the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, under the praise of His glory. Earnest money is money you put down, maybe on on a house that demonstrates you're going to come back and pay the rest in the future. Well, you've been purchased by God. You've been redeemed. God owns you. You're His. And He didn't send earnest money. He sent earnest spirit and sealed you. It identifies you with Christ and He brings the assurance of the Spirit to you. And then He says, you, can, you better believe I'm going to get what I own. I gave you my spirit. He'll be with you and you'll persevere to the end. 
as you trust me. And the redemption of the purchased possession is to wit the redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 8. One day gloriously, God's going to get the full redemptive purpose that He came for. Your body, your soul, your spirit. He's going to raise it from the grave at the return of Christ Jesus the Lord. And will be with Him forever. Now that's the future plan of God. But from the present plan, in verses 7 through 12, to the future, we've got wherefore. Now here comes application to three sentences that we sometimes stick in our pocket and say, well, that's good stuff, man. I, I, I can debate that. I can tell others about it. I'll just put that in my pocket till I need it. No, Paul says, take it out of your pocket. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, how? Chosen, predestinated, called, you trusted. And love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowing of Him. The knowing of the supremacy of Christ in verse 10. And the knowing of the plan of God, verses 3 through 14. That you may know. So let's finish out this morning with four things. For application of what God has given us and what we need to be seeing, having this spirit of wisdom and revelation as it relates to these four things. So here's the first one. Hope. Hope. Your eyes have been enlightened. You know Him. And now we're praying, Lord, that we would know the hope of His calling. Why is that necessary? Because if your hope is misplaced, your heart, your time, your energy, your passion, your strength, your soul will be given to the object for which you're hoping in. And the purpose of verses 3 through 14 never get off the ground in this church, they don't even get started. Because you're trying to live out the hope of your calling. That's what you're trying to live out. That's what I try to live out. Notice it says the hope of His calling. And sometimes we try to place our calling on God's and call it His. See, hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. And when you put your hope in anything but Christ, you are guaranteed a failure. Meaning, the idol... What you're expecting to deliver for a guaranteed result. And you know what that result is. Fulfillment, joy, peace. It's deemed for failure. Because nothing but God can give you. A delivery. On an expectation of future good. So our hearts, our minds, our bodies are given to the hope of our calling. And we, we come to church, but that's it. We don't participate in the, the fellowship of the mystery, Ephesians 3.9. Paul says, I want all men to see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Of what God is doing in the church. So if you're not hoping in His calling, you're distracted You're just Fox News and CNN. Ah, Guilty. Fox News. 
Can I watch that? Some way you got to keep upright. But, but given to being distracted. Rather than the hope of his calling. Hope. Where's your hope? If you lose this hope, you're a frustrated mother. You're an angry dad. Your marriage is not good. Because you're hoping in the wrong thing. You're hoping in your dad's skills and your mother's skills. You're hoping in your job. And you hope it doesn't get taken away. And you hope this war goes away just because I hope it doesn't affect me. Poor Ukrainians, but <laughs> the hope of His calling. He's called you eternal life. He's called you to Himself. He's called you into church life. To live out the mystery of His will. He's made it known to you to live it out in church life. We are sometimes like Israel was in Isaiah 57. We looked at that chapter briefly last, last Sunday. Where they were inflaming themselves with idols under every green tree. And Isaiah says, God's words through him. Thou art wearied with the greatness of thy way. Yet you didn't say there's no hope. You found life in your own hand. Therefore you weren't grieved. Life in your own hand. Hope is in my own hand. So they couldn't say, Isaiah 44, I have a lie in my right hand. I'm holding on to the object. Or I'm trying to get it. That's going to bring me all my dreams. It's going to fulfill all my hopes. You know, that marriage, that person, that job, that retirement, that money, that event. And we keep chasing and chasing. Now notice when we turn that around, what hope really is from that text. That's a chapter that God says He'll overcome their covetousness. He'll bring them peace. He will create the fruit of the lips, peace to them that are far and them that are close, near. That's Ephesians chapter 2. All right, turn that around. What happens? One day you look at the lie in your right hand and it's ashes. And you come to the conclusion, what have I been hoping in? What have I been eating? Feeding on ashes. It crumbles before your eyes. Everything you hoped for, everything you dreamed in, is now starting to crush right before your eyes. And then you say, this is hopeless. It's hopeless. There's no hope. Now remember, they couldn't say that. Life was in their hand. But then it crumbles. Could God be destroying your hope now through the chaos in our culture? Is He not destroying the hope of Christians who so easily put their hope in a dream, in a country, and it's crumbling before our eyes? Could God be saying, please look at your right hand and see the ashes there? And now you say, there's no hope in this. There's no hope. And then what happens? You get sick and grieved. And all that weariness in the greatness of the way, which meant they were... They were going great lengths, laboring, heavy laden. It didn't matter what it took. They would go to the great lengths to secure the life in their own hand. Now it crumbles. Now there's no hope. Now you're sick about what you've been feeding on. And now you feel burdened, laden, and cast down. And in that moment, the God of restoration looks at you and says, Come to me. Bring your pain, bring your hurt, bring your burden, 
Bring your labor. Bring your guilt. Bring your shame. Bring your sin. Bring your disappointments. Bring your fears. Bring your anxieties. Bring your worry. Bring it to me. I will give you rest. I will give you my joy. I will give you my peace. Because I will give you me. Jesus says. If we don't have the hope of His calling through a struggle of Ephesians chapter 6, right? See, behind Putin, beloved, we need to understand is the rulers of the darkness of this world. Behind every dictator, behind every American administration that is against God is the rulers of the darkness of this world. So we're not struggling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. We need to understand that so that what? Our hope keeps coming back to the God of heaven, the Christ that says, come to me. Now, i got to ask you, when are you going to come? Some of you here have not come. Have you been burdened enough? Have you been laboring enough? Have you experienced enough disappointment in everything you look at? Then the call of Christ is to come. To come to Him now. He will give you peace and rest. He will pull you into His great plan. And then He will start to live out this calling through your life. Come. If you're laboring, if you're wearied, if you're burdened, if you've been feeding on ashes and now you're just sick of it, come to Christ. And He'll relieve you gloriously. Isn't that wonderful? And furthermore, He says, I won't cast you out. You say, Lord, what if I eat some of those ashes again? Have you done that? I will not cast you out, ever. Is there any hope for the children in this room? I mean, why are you having children? Because the Christ gives rest and peace and hope. Would you have another child if you put your hope in this culture? No. But your hope is in His calling. So mothers, you can have strength. And fathers, you can go forward. And we can participate in what God calls us to as we pray and we read for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's His calling. Secondly, we need what? His riches. Now that's a great statement, isn't it? Look at what He says here. What is the, uh, the eyes of your understanding, verse 18, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. That's a lot of words there, right? Riches, wealth. I tried to think of a word that would be like the word billionaire, you know. We get pretty impressed with billionaires, you know why? All the resources they need. There is nothing lacking. If, if there is, he just he or she gets it. No problem. So I thought maybe, it's probably, this word will not be coined. Glory, glorionaire? Glory? Glorizillionaire? I don't know. You come up with a word. The riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. You have all that you need in the wealth of God's glory to be a mother that trains her children. To be a father that doesn't get angry all the time and disciplines his children. I didn't say never gets angry. To be a church member who understands 
the revelation of the mystery, who has been given wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. Therefore, they are part of this text, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto that edifying of itself in love. When you do that, beyond a, a Sunday sermon, when you don't have anything else better to do, and you're discipling and being discipled. And when you're connecting with the body, as much as time will allow with your other responsibilities, right? You're living out the great purpose of Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. And that's why God's made known the mystery. But when you lose hope in the calling, you're distracted and you're moving about with your plan. you got no time. you got no energy. And what is this discipling bit? I want no part of that, right? I know you don't think exactly like that, but just to way of expressing it. Or maybe sometimes you do, right? There is nothing more important in your life when you understand the hope of His calling. And He's called you to be a mother or a wife or a single person. Right? That gives meaning and fulfillment to a single person who's not yet married, who will never be married, who doesn't want to be married. Because you may have the gift of not being married. You have just as much potential for fulfillment in the riches of His glory, of the inheritance, as anybody else. So there's something future about this. There's going to be riches coming to us. We experience it. But there's something now about this, isn't there? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. That in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Ages, periods of time, already started, 110. The church age is here, and it's going to go to the return of Christ. We're not looking back anymore. The joy is not set behind us. The hope is not set behind us. And the race is not behind us. It is in front of us. God is going to demonstrate to you the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness. Kindness is usefulness there in Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 8. Because by grace are you being saved. That's a present tense riches, isn't it? There's something coming in the future glorious. But now in the church ages and periods of times coming until Christ returns bodily, He's going to prove to you the glory and air. I'm sorry. The overflowing wealth in what? Your transformation. Because by grace, He's saving you through faith. So you can't look at your marriage and say, this is hopeless! Hopeless. No, by grace, because of His riches, He's demonstrating you have everything you need in the riches of His grace for transformation to be the dad, to be the husband, to be the worker you're to be, or to be the wife, or to be the mother. You're being saved by grace through faith to do good deeds, and to speak good words to your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your church members, and in work. You see the connection there. God is demonstrating the usefulness of the riches of His grace for you in transforming you to be the kind of person that He called you to be by faith. So that then good deeds come out of that and good words. So that we can let no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouths, but that which is good to the use of edifying. 
That it may minister grace to your husband and to your wife and to your children or to your parents or to your church member. That requires transformation because we haven't arrived, right? Anybody say, I, I got that wrapped up years ago. No. So when we know, the, have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him and in the riches of His glory, we know an inheritance is coming so vast, but we know right now there's riches available to you. There's grace available that God says, I'm going to prove to you that everything you need to be church member, wife, mother, Husband, dad, worker, single person is available to you in the wealth of the glory of my grace. Amen. Now that, that's hopeful, isn't it? So when we are hoping in his calling and we're understanding the riches. Now remember, Paul is praying because to connect 3 through 14, this has got to happen. Or I'm on my way. I'm, I don't have time for this. <laughs> I mean, I'm living for the moment. Right? Because my hope is not in God. We live in the moment, hoping in God. We recognize the riches of His glory. It's available to us. Then what happens? Now I'm being transformed. I'm growing in what God calls me to be in a church. Discipling, loving, praying, being exhorted, exhorting. Repenting, asking forgiveness, being reconciled because I offended you. All this is found in the riches of God's glory. So there's nothing lacking in what God has given us. Nothing lacking at all. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. Want to be a godly wife? You have everything, not only for eternal life, but to be a godly wife so you can speak godly words to your husband by grace, by the riches of everything God's glory is providing you. Yes, future, but right now. This is transforming grace because we'll never get out of chapter 1 unless God gives us the riches of grace, right? Got to have it. And Jesus says, I died so that you might have it. That's encouraging. Okay, then the third one, power, power, that we may know what is the exceeding greatness of His power, exceeding, just excelling, power is megathos, I kind of like that word, it's like a superhero word, isn't it, megathos, so give up Iron Man, tell Batman to get lost, Captain America, you're no good here, megathos is what you have, power. You're never going to forget that, are you? You'll say that tomorrow. I like that. In fact, say it right now. Megathos. Again, megathos. At least you got one thing out of this sermon, right? Megathos. What is that? Now remember, when we have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, we know the great, the megathos of His power to usward who believe. And this is how He describes it. According, there's that word again, owing to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. I'm in verse 20 of chapter 1. 
and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, angelic powers, earthly powers, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Oh, he's far above Putin or Biden or any other name. Uh, Trump, all of them. Far, exceedingly far above in this power that he wrought in Christ, this megathos which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, is yours. What is that? Well, first it's the power of God's righteousness. There's two facets of that. The power of God's wrath satisfied and the power of His glory vindicated. The wrath of God satisfied is what brought Christ out of the grave, isn't it? If Christ had not satisfied the wrath of God, His bones would be rotting somewhere in Jerusalem. It would. But the tomb is empty, beloved. The angel said, He is not here. He is risen, just as He said. Why? Wrath satisfied. Name vindicated. God raised Him from the dead for the glory of His own name. To show He's not a God that overlooks sin, not yours or anybody's. And so He raised Him and put Him at His own right hand, far above all these powers and all these names. So the point is, this power is that God is for you and He's not against you. God is on your side. God is always on your side because of the death of Christ. He's on your side as a mother and a father and in your marriage. Don't quit. Don't give up. <clears throat> Tap into the power. He's for you. Who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not freely give you all things? All this power, all that you need, all that he is. Pray, read, ask, Paul says. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. But it's more, it's the power of being raised with Christ. When he raised Christ up and set him at his own right hand, look what happened in chapter 2. When he raised you up. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come. Now get that. When He raised Him up, He raised you up. The imagery of he here is that you've been united to Christ. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3.1, If you then be risen with Christ, because you have been if you're a believer. It's the power to us who believe. Seek those wings, things which are above, not things on the earth. Set your affection on things above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. That's where you are, united with Him. Your life is hid with Christ there at the right hand of God. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ with God. Here's the application. Kill your sin. How could we ever fight the battle with the chaos that's all around us? The temptation. The sexual revolution. The temptation in all that online media offers.
you've been risen with Christ. You have the power to be an overcomer because you already have overcome in Christ. To grow and to fight. Sin is still ever present with us, isn't it? But its rule has been broken. It's broken by the power of Christ. So it's the power of being raised together with Christ. It's the power of union with Christ that helps us be what this epistle says and helps us to fight with the whole armor of God. All that is this power. But then it's the power of Christ in you, isn't it? Chapter 3, look at this. Paul prays again. He understands if this mystery is going to be revealed or going to have its uh, expression in the church. He's got to pray. So he does it a second time just in the third chapter. And he says in verse 11, according this purpose, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you uh, faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. I'm in chapter 3, verse 14 now. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, there's wealth, to be strengthened, there's megathos, with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now wait a minute, He is dwelling in your hearts by faith. But that you would experience the power, the resurrection power, The power of Christ in me is faith that is producing love in a called out assembly, a local body of Christ, whereby they are diffusing the glory of the grace of God through their life together, through their struggle together, through their discipleship together, through their reconciliation together, through their forgiveness together and repentance together. There is no political power like the power of Christ crucified. He's in you. So God now comes and says, I'm going to live in you, and I'm going to give you this power by faith. And so Paul says, I'm praying that we be strengthened with that power. And when you are, what happens? You'll grow in speaking to your children in a way that honors God. You'll grow, children, in being submissive to the authority of Christ over in your family, even though your parents are not always right, right? Isn't that right? Right. But it's unto the Lord. You can grow in that. You can grow, dads, in speaking right words to your wife and loving them as Christ loved the church. You can grow in that because there's grace available, there's power available, but you're hoping in the wrong thing. So God is calling you back to this hope, to this wealth, and to this power. And what's the end of that? His headship. And what does he say? He raised him up far above all these powers and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church on behalf of the church. He, he's head over all things, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him that is diffusing all in all. That's what the word filleth mean. The body is the completeness of him. Him, Christ, is diffusing all, in all places and all things. Diffusing. Now, the illustration I used, I'm just going to use it again. So if you missed it Friday, guys, here it is again. Some of you have a diffuser that your wife bought you, and she put essential oils in there. I've got one. I told the men at the conference, I like mine. It lights up. It's very comforting and pleasing, and the lights change about every 30 seconds. Diffuse means to spread over a wide area. So the aroma of the oil diffuses 
throughout my room. Christ is using something to diffuse the aroma of His glory throughout the planet and into the galaxies. Ephesians 3.10. Read that one. Now when you work, you use your body. And when He works, He uses His body, which is the church. Christ aims to use this local assembly and many others to be a diffusing aroma of the praise of the glory of His grace as the church comes together and they struggle and they live and they disciple and they worship and they pray. As Christ fills all things like the water covers the sea. The knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now if you're an optimist in your eschatological view... That'll work there because it's a savour of life to life and it's a savour of death and to death. So you may think it's going to be life to life and the planet's going to be filled with Christians. If you're a pessimist in your eschatological view, it works because it's death to death. You may think there's going to be very few Christians. But the point is, the aroma goes all over the place. It's either death, it's either life. So even the two views can get along because the, the point is what? It's being diffused, it's being diffused. Through the life of the church. Wherefore, I am praying that God would give heritage. You pray with me. The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. Because your eyes have been enlightened to this. That you may know what is the hope of His calling. What the riches of the glory of the inheritance and the saints is. And the power to usward who believe. And the headship of Christ over everything. Over Putin. Over dictators. Over everyone. For the diffusing. Of his aroma through small, insignificant, weak people like us who have no ability to do anything in this book, but Christ lives in you, so you have all power available. May the Lord help us to continue, be revived, and unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray.